one of the reasons that I wanted to talk um, is that, you know, I know absolutely nothing about Chinese music. So anything is going to be new and interesting to me. Yeah, this is a band that Yan and I interviewed before they were popular um, back in 20, I want to say 2018. Is that right, Yan? Yeah. Or 2017, 2018. 18. Um, so we went to their hometown in Fujian, which is kind of like a coastal province, very close to Taiwan. Um, and we had a great time with the band and they were kind of up and coming. They called themselves leisure pop. Um, and they kind of reflected this sense of weariness and lack of ambition that was going through China's kind of millennial generation. Um, and they've since become relatively bigger and they've just put out a new album this year, which we both love. All right. Well, then, yeah, I have the link. So I'll just insert that into the episode here. <laughs> the idol cast welcome to my podcast i have two guests here with me today two very special guests um to talk about a subject i know nothing about which is a chinese indie rock and also i think chinese music in general um would you guys like to introduce yourselves um yeah and you go first <laughs> okay um my name's Yen. Uh, I'm from China, but I'm currently based in Amsterdam. Previously, I was a photojournalist, but I'm now back in school and uh, 
Um, I've always been following the indie music scene and also kind of on the fringe of the idol industry in China as well. Yeah, so I'm really happy to be here today. And I'm Krish. I used to be a music promoter in China. I've been here since 2012, 2013 or so with a few gaps. I grew up in India and Singapore and I'm still based in Beijing, though I no longer work in the music industry. But I do write about music and I'm currently working on a graphic novel about the last 20 years of underground music in Beijing. Well, welcome. And so I have a really important question, which is, how come there are 1.5 billion people in China and no good bands? I mean, I I read it in foreign policy, so it has to be true, right? (laughs) Um, That piece has created and ended friendships in our lives. Um, (laughs) Wow, where where do we start with that question? I think I think the big the first question is how do you even define good? Because if I remember correctly the premise of that article, they're asking why does China like why do we not have Gundam style in China that's viral? Or why do we not have this like Mongolian rock YouTube video that went viral? But then is that even good music? I don't know. Well, the the premise, because I, I reread it yesterday, and the premise of the article is, how come Chinese rock is not authentic, which the author defines as a, a quote, you know, modernization, unquote, of Mongolian folk music combined with, you know, apparently some sort of rock music that the author approves of as modern um you know why doesn't china have this specifically which is what the author defines as good so there was a lot of pushback when this article was first published from the corners of china twitter that we uh, yan and i inhabit and it was kind of ironic because the author was herself someone who used to write pretty nuanced profiles of chinese rap artists um and this current wave of hip hop that started with reality TV shows in roughly 2016 or so. And her reply was what Yan said earlier, that she doesn't care if there are good underground or indie rock bands. Uh, Why can't, uh, in her words, a Midwestern mom discover a Chinese band on YouTube, which apparently they did with this Mongolian viral metal band phenomenon. Again, that answer raises more questions than (laughs) than clarifications, really. Um, Because A, that is not true, in that there are many Chinese musicians, especially hip-hop, who have broken through to an extent. And also... Why does that particular idea of scale matter when talking about, quote-unquote, good bands? Um, anyway, the, the piece was very ill-conceived and got the correct amount of backlash. <laughs> and has probably rightly been forgotten, but it still looms large in Google search results. And it occasionally, uh, yeah, it'll haunt us for a while, I think. Yeah, the Google search results thing is important because if you're an outsider like me 
looking for information. I mean, these are the kinds of articles that you're going to find. And this is the kind of framing that you'll see, which I, th I think is really unfortunate because, yeah, there's no nuance and it's all framed for the perspective of, yeah, the, the Midwestern mom. I mean, why is an American point of view here the most important when thinking about what's good or what's global? I mean, China is massive um, just on its own. You know, Asia is massive. Do we need those Midwestern moms to care? Yeah, exactly. Also, taking the pieces premise on its own terms, I feel like even looking at Mongolian or Mongolian-inspired music in China, those that border between Mongolia and China is not an absolute one. There, it's it's quite porous culturally speaking, and there is a lot of incredible Mongolian-inspired or music made by people of Mongolian descent um, or culturally Mongolian peoples in China, um, including bands that are fairly big, like Hangai. And it, I feel like the debate around authenticity around music in China has this kind of double-edged curse where it both focuses too narrowly on China by ignoring, say, its connections with East Asia, with Taiwan, with Hong Kong, with Japan, Korea, and Mongolia, like just to uh, list a few countries on its borders. But also it focuses too broadly on capital C China rather than looking at you know, regions within China and its musical cultures, which are fairly diverse. This article somehow magically manages to do both. Usually <laughs> they do one or the other. <laughs> but it, but it's useful in capturing like exactly what the problem with this entire um, English language discourse around music in China is. Um, so I guess we have the article to thank for that. Yeah, that that is something that I noticed. And um, you pointed me towards an episode of a podcast um, called Radio Lab, which I used to listen to many, many years ago, but hadn't tuned in in a while. And yeah, talking about rock music in capital C, China, that somehow managed to not mention a single Chinese or even Asian artist whatsoever, which was very, it, it was just a very strange framing of, of music in, in China. Yeah, and did you hear that episode? The Dako one? Yeah, I actually didn't hear it because <laughs> you had so much criticism on it. And <laughs> I feel like, I I mean, I lived through that history myself, so I not necessarily have to listen to it to know what they're talking about. Oh, so you know that John Denver personally, single-handedly <laughs> saved music in China. He saved you from a lifetime of only listening to opera. I mean, that's what I learned from Radio Lab. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, yeah, it's kind of 
weird because I actually just grew up listening to like Taiwan or Hong Kong pop music. I think a little, also a little bit of Japanese pop music through anime,、um, and then there are just all these vendors by the street when I go to like go to school or after school when I go home、um, with all these boxes of CDs and tapes from you know Western countries, and sometimes I would just buy them because of the cover. I have no idea what those music is. And I mean, it is like a very interesting discovery at the time, and you know. But I was not really listening to opera, like revolutionary <laughs> opera, when I was a kid. No, according to Radiolab, that was the only music in China at the time. <laughs> Maybe I was born too late. <laughs> <laughs> I did a little bit of reading into Taiwanese music history、um, when I did an episode on the Taiwanese wave dramas. It's pretty clear that you know artists like Teresa Tang were, I mean, everywhere you couldn't escape Teresa Tang. Yes, and、um, yeah, actually, she was my dad's favorite singer. And yeah, at the beginning, you you couldn't escape her, and then you just couldn't find her because the government thinks her music is not. Healthy, but then there's like all these ways for for people in China. I think in the 80s to find a way to listen to Teresa Tan. It's really amazing. Also, just just connecting back to what Yan said earlier about,、um, you know, seeing vendors on the streets with cassettes and then later CDs, and then just kind of like having your own personal timeline of music regard by just picking what you thought looked appealing,、um, has so many like parallels across Asia. Like growing up in India, I feel like I consumed music before there was a music media to tell me what to consume, and therefore. It feels like the last couple of generations in China, everyone has a personal timeline of how they discovered the music that they came to love,、um, without a kind of central controlling trend line or a media landscape that clearly establishes, you know, markers of lineage and genre and taste and class and things like that、uh, with music. So there's this kind of very strange phenomenon in China where everyone has a personal timeline of how they came to. The music that they love, and it's not always common. So you would see punk rockers who like grew up listening to like Madonna, or like are still in love with George Michael.、Um, and this is not unusual. It's just a, a consequence of how music of all genres came to China. So unlike other countries in Asia, 
China did not have that wave of, say, campus folk um, in the late 60s or the wave of rock and roll that pretty much every other country in the region did. Um, Thailand did, India did, Iran did. Singapore did also. Singapore did. Hong Kong did. Yeah. um, And Taiwan did, famously. There's a famous incident in Taiwan, which is still kind of central to the history of music in this region, where this folk singer on campus came and like smashed a bottle of Coca-Cola on stage and said, we must sing our own songs. And it sparked this moment, movement of campus folk and folk rock, like socially conscious folk rock that kind of came to China like decades later through like musicians like Lin Chengxiang. But this doesn't mean like China was a complete black box. Um, at least till the 70s or so, I feel like coastal elites, uh, people in the border regions, you know, Fujian or Guangdong in the south or Xinjiang in the west, um, there was music streaming in in a limited extent. Like to this day, there is a generation of older Chinese, I mean, including Yan's parents who are familiar with certain 60s Bollywood music uh, because of the presence of tapes and radio recordings that filtered in via the West. But starting from the 80s onwards, you had basically a generation that discovered all of this music together in one time, which is what led to this scrambling of narratives and timelines. So you had people, you know, discovering everything from the 50s to the 80s all together, like just with none of the traditional markers that would separate this music. And unlike what Radiolab tells you, it wasn't just John Denver, it was everything. And a lot of the tastes of um, the generation of Chinese that grew up in the 80s and 90s was seeded by what was popular in Taiwan and Hong Kong at the time. And those were definitely um, an easier, like filtered in easier, right? Again, like more than say Western music like John Denver did. Yes, for sure. Um, And actually, I recently have been just thinking even, um, I think, extending this Taiwan-Hong Kong influence on mainland China listeners, I think especially my generation born around the 90s. Um, I've been thinking about this extending the influence into Japan and Korea because I recently started to realize a lot of the pop music I listened to when I was a kid are sent by Hong Kong or Taiwanese singers, but they're in fact covers of Japanese songs or later I think there was an early wave of hip-hop artists in from Taiwan and Hong Kong and in fact they were actually doing cover songs from the early k-pop groups yeah so I think there's this circuit of um, East Asian music scene at the time although maybe I was not a very attentive listener at the time I only really discovered this recently it was pretty common for there to be chinese covers of um japanese pop songs especially in like the late 80s um via, yes. tai- via taiwan um, yes yeah um groups like the what is it, the little tigers you know their yeah de- their debut song was essentially a shonen tai cover oh yeah
Yeah, that's another thing. So they're they're huge in mainland China, right? Um, and I, I think they became huge by playing in like the official Chinese New Year gala in the central state television, which is something almost unthinkable now because now you would think that's a very political. I guess at the time it it, it was also a political decision, but. You know, in the eighties, um, a lot of the Taiwanese singers who played this pop genre at the time, I think it was extremely new in mainland China. They were able to play at the most important cultural event in China. I think that was pretty incredible, and I think that um, led to their popularity in China too. Oh, I didn't know that. That that is interesting. I think this is a good time to play maybe Fei Xiang's like oh yeah Yi Ba Hua right. Um, so yeah. there was this American Chinese American singer um, called Fei Xiang uh, who he he was kind of like he became one of the biggest pop music acts in China because of his appearance on the Spring Festival CCTV gala um, in the eighties where he sang. A cover of a Frankie Cow, like a Taiwanese singer, Frankie Cow's song, and it was kind of like one of the earliest disco funk hits in China. <laughs> I want to say it's a it it's awesome. Like it still holds up so well. It's a it's a fantastic performance. But I also discovered later that his sister was an influential figure in like the New York no wave scene, which would later become super important in China's indie music scene. So there's all these connections between the pop and indie world through this one person that I find really interesting. All right, well we'll drop that in here. <laughs> Um, and I don't know any of this, so I'm. This is why you're here to talk to me about it. <laughs> yeah, I also want to. Um, this is something that comes up a lot and is maybe mm. a point of obsession with a lot of people interested in writing about the Chinese music scene, where Radio Lab does this too. Where they're obsessed with who was the first, like who was the first big act. To like break through closed China and like play a Western style concert, right? Well, um, does it? I mean, not to break mm-hmm. it, but does it? I mean, this doesn't. None of this matters. The Western. I, I don't know. I get really annoyed at like the first big Western blah blah blah. I mean, you know what? Isn't it more interesting that you know that 
when Korea was aggressively trying to send like HOT into China, <laughs> China. <laughs> I mean, you know, to me anyway, I think that's more interesting. Or um, Saijo Hideki playing, you know. I mean, on that note, we have wars around the fandoms involving Korean pop stars to thank for the current state of the Chinese internet. This is a slightly hot take, but no, please, it's true. I love hot takes. <laughs> <laughs> no, but but to go back to the the reason is that I think most musical histories of China are obsessed with this idea of a point insertion, like this kind of. It started here at this point. This is where everything started, right? Um, even even Chinese histories are obsessed with this. This is not a purely, you know, Western obsession. Um, but I guess what I wanted to say was that the history is actually really open, and the honest answer is we don't know. Um, um, conventional histories will want to talk about this French musician Jean Michel Jarre, who played this big show in 1981 in Beijing. Um, as one of the earliest like big concerts by like a like a Western musician, but then Yan and I discovered last year during a trip to Tianjin, which is a city close to Beijing, that a Japanese band, a pretty big Japanese band called Godigo, played a show in Tianjin in 1980, which, as far as I know, has not been written about in any official musical history of China, which would make them the first you know big non-Chinese band to play play a show in mainland. And we also know now that there was at least one cover band on Peking University that used to play Beatles covers in 1979. And there were definitely Filipino cover bands that played in the bars in Beijing throughout the 70s. And so it's actually an open question of, of where the music started filtering into China. And I think it's more interesting that it's an open question and it's complicated rather than always talking about George Michael and John Michel Shar and to an extent, Kenny G. This is, I mean, this really is an obsession with sort of traditional music history. Um, you're right. And just in what research I've done um, into, you know, rock history, um, even, you know, American and British people writing in English, they always want to go back to that er point. You're right. And they'll, they'll go to the Beatles or they'll go to Elvis and it, things are a lot more complicated than just a single origin point. I mean, I, I don't know, like there is the idea of the collective unconscious and things can filter up in, in multiple places at the same time, you know, the same idea or the same or similar ideas can bubble up in more than one place. I think, yeah, I think it is more interesting when it's, when it's open-ended, you know, how many kids had cassettes of of whatever rock band or heard something went to see a covers band at the university or heard somebody talk about a covers band at a university and created their own their own sort of take on what that was we also don't know you know how you know especially as a westerner we assume that people take in things the same way we do whereas that's that's not always the case yeah i i've been recently I've been obsessed with this Japanese publishing house called Public Bath, who do very nicely produced books about specific niches of the Japanese music scene. And they have a really nice book called Rumors of Noizu um, about noise music in Japan, which has this oversized reputation around the world. And the author says, honestly speaking, 
the number of people who actually saw these noise bands play live was in their dozens, maybe at best. Like it was less than hundred in their lifetime. And yet they are known by millions around the world because the scene was just like painstakingly documented by the dozens of people that were there. And it gave it this mystique that is not borne out by the evidence of people actually listening to their music, which which I found really interesting. And also true of many indie scenes that we take as canon and are maybe are not canon in terms of people actually experiencing the music, but canon in terms of how well it was documented. Yeah, this is something I'm obsessed with because you, I mean, you just in an American context, look at the Velvet Underground, who, I mean, how many people saw them play and yet they've been retroactively rewritten as this massive band in the the American rock canon. But yeah, I mean, at the time people were listening to, I, I don't know, John Denver, you know, it's, um, it's all very, a, a lot of what we think of today, it is all very influenced by what was documented and what is available for us to discover. We're all that Midwestern mom, I guess, at the end of the day. <laughs> She's gone to play for a fool. Yes, it's true. Cause everybody knows she the things she does to please. She's just a little tease. See the way she I guess that's a, a good point to lead into um, talking about the the indie scene in Beijing, which is your wheelhouse, I believe. Yeah, I'm curious what, again, your, your first, like when did you first hear about an indie music scene growing up in Beijing? I think, well, for my generation, especially someone who lives in Beijing, it's hard to talk about this without talking about this website called Douban. Um, it, is a, it is a website mostly for young kids who are interested in sharing books, music, and film. Um, that's the feature of the website, but then it specifically attract like college-educated, like slightly intellectual, but also like very, I think, the, the user group themselves want to call them like very a, a very cultured audience. And I think when I registered as a user on that website, um, I started to discover music that was not in the mainstream. Um, I think at the time, mainstream being, you know, songs you hear um, on TV or just in, in the street, uh, that's being played, or 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 just music you can find in cassette and CD shops in the city, and uh, I think from from that website, it's I discovered like a lot of 
indie folk music, not just in China, but also like um, from the West. And I think that's also where a lot of indie musician in China um, discuss music, find uh, band members, and that's also where they post um, information about shows. Actually, in fact, the romp, um, I think they, um, the, the lead singer, also the founder of the band, found one of the band members through uh, Douban. Yeah, so I guess that's how I've, that's a very long and detailed uh, story about how I found indie music. But then I think I also have to say that living in Beijing, there's this very famous venue in the late 2000 called Yuong um, Yishan. And I, I've i always heard about it. And I, although I don't think I've been there until I went to college, which is after um, I became into, uh, yeah, became into like indie music through Douban. When did when did that site start up? I would say it was around two thousand and six, two thousand and seven. Oh, okay. Wow. That's yeah, yeah. And it's still active today. It is still active. Wow. Um, it has the exact same user interface as two thousand five. Yes, and also in in a way, I don't think the. I mean, of course, there's a lot of new users, but generally speaking, the demographic of the user base is still this pretty self-selective group of kids into, you know, music, books, and films. Um, Of course, there are also other corners where people discuss, like, slash fiction and idol fandom. Um, But yeah, in general, a lot of the discussions on indie indie music or indie film still happens on this website. Yeah, it's kind of like IMDb plus Goodreads plus the something awful forums in terms of its <laughs> impact on everything from like cultural conversations to internet culture amongst urban like urban professionals in China. It's it's undeniably the central factor in why many music scenes, uh, many indie music scenes appeared all across the country and specifically Beijing. Um, it was like such a such a big factor in why the scenes could coordinate and say find each other and uh, organize shows. And what shows I mean, when you when you would go to a show, I mean, is it? when I would go to sort of underground punk shows and things like that back in um, my day, you know, you could, it would be, it could be at somebody's house in a basement or um, there were a lot of unofficial venues, you know, as well as sort of the, the dingy clubs. But I mean, was there like a circuit people would tour on or bands mostly play like in the city or what kind of venues were there? I think Krish knows better about this than I do. I'm a very music um. show go. <laughs> oh, you don't go to a lot of shows? No, I think I, I usually just go to shows in venues that are pretty well known or, I don't know, like established in a way. 
Uh, lawful, lawful venues. <laughs> You've never been surrounded by a bunch of very sweaty people in a room that stinks of cigarette and alcohol. <laughs> well, unfortunately, no. that also happens in lawful venues in Beijing. <laughs> yeah, ne- never touch the walls. <laughs> you go, Gishan. Um, no, but it's a real risk in that having been to multiple shows where the cops come to break things up. Um, the thing with China is that they immediately want to, you know, take down your details and, you know, take down your your ID numbers and, and take photographs of every single person who was there. And with a Chinese ID card, all of that is just easy. It's just like your single national ID number is enough for them to, you know, target you in the future if they need to. Whereas with passports, it's it's just a little. You're kind of outside the main national database of um, ID numbers, so you have a little bit more leniency if you get caught. Uh, usually, if if you if you get caught at a show and you show them your passport, they're kind of like, okay, you can go. Um, they're they're a little bit more lenient with that. Yeah. So well, you're um, a foreigner, so. so yeah, it's a bit of a privilege for me to <laughs> to be able to go to more mm. you know underground slash weirder shows, but. Broadly speaking, um, the Beijing scene comes and goes in circles, and it's one of the curses of the city um, because it is simultaneously the creative center of underground indie music in China, uh, as well as being the most stupid, dumb city in terms of like <laughs> urban policies and the city that least recognizes that this is a big engine of creativity. Smaller cities have governments that occasionally, even though that recognition comes with many, 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 many caveats, that they have a music scene and they're, they're happy to help promote that in a way. That'll never happen in Beijing. Uh, the Beijing city government will never recognize that an indie scene exists and is worth promoting or preserving or even encouraging in any way. So what tends to happen is that there's a flurry of venues that get opened by enthusiasts, by music promoters, or by labels. They last for about a year, year and a half, and then usually they would fall victim to real estate policies or bad landlords or noise complaints, which is a huge, huge thing in Beijing. And the few venues that do manage to survive by dint of just being in an area that does not face police complaints, for example, they tend to create scenes around them. And so the two v- venues that Yan mentioned, Yugong Yishan, would change locations multiple times. Um, the name comes from a like a Chinese idiom about the stupid man that tried to move a mountain, which is a good metaphor for what it means to do something with music in China. And D22, which was the other venue in the university area of Beijing that led to what is probably the most well-known cluster of bands to come out of the Beijing scene, starting from the 2008 Olympics onwards. Apart from these side by side are dive bars that are also really important as kind of watering holes for the scene where people meet each other. SOS was a kind of particularly legendary one. And these also serve as backup venues in case the main venues are closed or are being investigated for drugs or are being investigated for police complaints, etc. And then there's people's houses, especially when there was an overlap between the music scene and Beijing's contemporary art scene. Again, this was roughly between 2008 to 2012, I want to say, maybe even earlier. When people, when artists like Ai Weiwei were like still based in Beijing, you would also see a lot of shows that happened in art spaces. 
and you would see a lot of shows that happened in galleries and in artists' homes. And in one instance that I remember, in a building marked for demolition that just had its, they'd, they'd gotten rid of the walls, but this, the floor was still there and part of the ceiling was, and a band would just, you know, set up some amplifiers and play. The most famous instance of these kind of almost squatter type venues was a place called Rain Temple, which existed in the far east of Beijing in a neighborhood called Tongzhou, which is soon going to be the seat of the city government. They're like moving all the government offices there. But it used to be kind of like a punk neighborhood and it had a bunch of punk dives. Sorry, yeah. it's also where the Universal Studio is right now. <laughs> True, yeah. It is the opposite of punk right now, but uh, Rain Temple in particular was this place where it was a commune where musicians would just live and work and like run a little like fish farm <laughs> and um, and make noise music and punk rock and kind of jam together and live together. And it was kind of like an alternative vision of what it meant to live in Beijing. Like it even like came up with philosophies of what it meant to live in urban China that was maybe lost for a while and is weirdly coming back now with kind of Chinese, the Chinese equivalent of the U.S. Great Resignation, where people are looking for alternatives from the rat race and um, dropping out of um, ambitious long work hours and just trying to find communal spaces where they can relax and you know, live more laid back lives. And the indie scene kind of helped seed a lot of those dreams and, and really had a part to play in creating that vocabulary of resistance in China in very subtle ways, even if they were not overtly, you know, political or protest songs. style markers that went along with this? I mean, I know that when art scenes kind of overlap with rock and, and music scenes, you do end up with some fashion and style and all that kind of coming with it. I mean, like, um, you know, the Sex Pistols and, um, I mean, they came out of a fashion store. Yeah, funnily enough, um, Yan and I realized that we had gone to the same show in Beijing in 2012 which was a, a Velvet Underground-themed show, right? <laughs> yes. At the time, we didn't know each other, but I think we went to it. That, that was a 45 years anniversary of Velvet Underground, I think, if I'm correct. Yeah. Um, and it was, uh, four, uh, it was four bands from Beijing. Each did one or two covers of uh, Velvet Underground. 
and then they also played their own own sounds. This comes to like I I guess like I I'm very careful about using the word scene to describe a cluster of bands because for me a scene is exactly what you just said, which is it has to be beyond one medium. It has to be say a cluster of bands that filmmakers and fashion designers and photographers um, are inspired by, and then the music in turn is inspired by them. And so they all come together like across mediums around say a certain idea or a place or a venue. Like that's what a scene means to me. And I feel like the word scene is maybe overused to describe any group of bands. But by that definition, Beijing is actually one of the very few scenes that existed in China over the last two decades. And the scene in Beijing that started around 2008 with the venues Yugong Yishan and D22. And one of the shows we went, the shows that the show that Yen and I went to in 2012 was part of that scene. Like that scene really did have, you know, the photographer Ren Hang, who's really famous, took portraits of the bands that were in the scene. Uh, people like Ai Weiwei used to come to the show. Filmmakers were inspired by this music and a, a lot of um, new wave cinema from that era does draw on imagery of the Beijing underground from that time. There were comic book artists that did um, posters for the scene that are now famous in China. And the singer of one of these bands, New Pants, is himself like a famous illustrator. And I feel like that sense of ferment where like all of these mediums were inspired by each other, that's what's gone now. As this, as this scene faded from 2015 onwards and probably, I would say, died with the pandemic to be resurrected in weirder forms. But we can get to that later. <laughs> yeah, it reminds me, you know, what you're talking about reminds me a lot of uh, like grunge, like in Seattle, like in the late 80s and early 90s, where it was a coming together of a bunch of, of different mediums to include, you know, uh, comic book artists like um, Peter Bagg. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but I like your definition of scene. I think that's very, it's comprehensive and it's, it's accurate. <laughs> <laughs> this is a weird one in that I feel like, I, I think Yan might disagree or agree, but there's a band, there's a Beijing band called Carsick Cars who for better or for worse, are central to this story and the story of Beijing indie music since 2008. They tend to be overemphasized in writing about the scene, both in China and outside of China, partly because the music label that they were part of um, was very good at documenting them. And the D22 slash Maybe Mars, which is the name of the label, was very good at, at courting media attention and very good at documenting everything that they did. And I maybe I had a phase where I resisted Karsik Cars, where I felt like they were not central to the story. But now I seem to have come back around to them. And now I think they are central to the story. I mean, they were the first band I heard in my journey towards finding indie music in Beijing. They, they played, one of their side projects played a show in Singapore where I lived at the time. And I asked them how I could listen to more of their music. And they said, you should be on Doban. And that's how I discovered other bands in the scene. But yeah, I guess like Karsik Cars, their song Chong Nan Hai is probably a big generational marker. Still gets any crowd anywhere in China just absolutely wild whenever they play that song. And that would be a good one to, to play. 
at this yeah, point uh, to give you a sense of the Beijing scene. I don't know, Yan. Do you agree with that? <laughs> I agree. I'm also just thinking, because I think Cars of Cars is also one of the first bands I heard of from the scene, but I really can't remember how, like f- from whom or through which website or through which venue. Yeah, I don't know. But somehow they they are kind of like a poster child of the scene from that period of time. And the story of how Karsik Kars formed is really interesting because it maybe answers some of your earlier questions about how the scene came to be. So the three of them, two of them from Beijing and one from Tianjin, I think. They were university students in Beijing and, and universities were the first, this was around 2003-ish onwards, were the first to get internet access on a regular basis in China. And it became a kind of university obsession to be on messaging boards that were specific to universities. And these message boards, which were called BBSs um, in China, were basically the foundational source of meme culture. <laughs> and these kids met on a Lou Reed Velvet Underground BBS. 
where people were asking about how they could listen to bands like Suicide and Sonic Youth. And one of the band members was like, does anybody have a Sonic Youth or Suicide CD? And one of the other band members was like, oh, yeah, I do. Um, I can burn you a CD if you want. And that's how they ended up meeting. And it's kind of ironic that, like, you know, we we went to see them at a Velvet Underground theme show, like, six years later. The scene was kind of made possible by the fact that these like-minded people could find each other through these message boards and then meet in person at these cassette shops on the street that Yan was talking about earlier, um, which then became the places where they could exchange ideas, think about forming bands, um, find cheap instruments and share resources, etc. And it just happened to coincide with the rise of you know, dive bars and new venues where they could perform. And then the scene just like coalesced around that. When you would want to listen to music, I mean, would they sell CDs at shows? Um, I mean, was it all online? I'm I'm just curious, like in Japan, which is what I'm most familiar with. I mean, there's a huge indie scene, but, you know, there's indie labels. And then um, there's the major labels and you know, unless you're, I mean, I feel like even the, the bands playing like the real dive bars, which I, I've been to, um, a few of those in Tokyo, but, um, you know, you can still find like, you know, people will sell CDs, but, um, yeah, I mean, I guess, or upload songs online. I mean, were people doing that back then? I mean, it was all dope band, right? Yeah. Like is that, that's where I heard most of the band, most of the c- bands in the scene. Like just on MP3, like uploaded, like you just stream it. Yeah, I think so. Cause I think um, at the time, Doban still has this whole music section for musicians, where it's almost like MySpace, where they can just oh. upload their music and people can stream it. And at one point, I heard from a friend that um, for each play, they actually get one cent. I mean, it's a very, it's very little money. It's, almost nothing but yeah it seems like there is like a small business model but like you said uh, like you said i think um there's also indie labels for example this um so-called scene are um they were um they were all from one label yeah they the the label also produce cds and albums for them um but i think the the most popular way to listen to them is through online yeah i just dropped the link to well i just was like curious if Carsick cars still had a doban page and they do um though i believe it hasn't been updated for a while but oh it actually it, they do keep it updated which is interesting but this page gives you a good sense of what a doban website looks like I this like is that. prime visual content for your audio podcast <laughs> um but i i find it really interesting because like the thing that blew my mind as someone like who didn't grow up on the Chinese web. Oh, wow. It does was, look like MySpace. And yeah, it's like if you see the categories on top, oh it's like, gosh. you know, listen, shows, yeah. uh, photos and video, yeah. blog and discussion. Right? Like it's all here. <laughs> and then on the side, what you're like, you oh, if you, if you want to work with us, <laughs> add us on WeChat. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I'll, I'll have, include the link in the show notes. So everyone else can uh, check it out. And this is like so valuable, especially now that I'm, say, researching the scene mm. to draw my comic book, where every band just just was a perfect archivist of their own careers, where everything they ever did, every show they ever did was on Doban. 
and I just have to go to like the Karsik Cars Doban page to find photos from every show they've ever done and um, discussions about the set list at every show they've ever done. And it's just, it's this archive that is almost unparalleled. And I honestly would not find it for shows that happened after the heyday of Doban. And so this is a, a perfect memory of the Beijing scene, especially, but scenes around China between 2007 to 2014, really. And it's, it's incredible. So what happened in 2014, 2015 that kind of killed off the scene or at least put Mm. it on a a decline? (laughs) Yeah, it's a bit of an open question. I'm curious what you think, Ian, actually. I want to hear from you first. Hmm. I guess it's also just, it's kind of like a slow transition, right? I would say maybe a little bit later, 2017, when Beijing shut down a lot of so-called illegal spaces because Beijing um, Beijing government went through this um, like urban renewal project where they start to enforce very strict rules on licensing um, and they shut down a lot of storefronts previously it's almost illegal but it was operating in a gray zone and they were allowed to exist but then in 2017 under this campaign all of them were shut down so that led to like an increase of rent and a lot of people a lot of spaces were closed and made it really expensive to stay in Beijing and a lot of people in the scene left um, because it became affordable I think there's also a trend of commercialization right because right after that there's all these reality shows that try to put um well there was this one reality show called the big band that tried to make rock seems cool and therefore um that it can enter the mainstream and it was quite quite successful so then i think it divided the the indie rock scene a little bit because people who participated in commercialization or the reality show became sellouts and people who stayed are still miserable, but um, they still couldn't find a way to sustain themselves as indie musicians. remind me of grunge in seattle in the 90s wow 
<laughs> is there is there a book you'd recommend about because I'm I'm curious to read more about it now since there seem to be these parallels. Yeah, well, there's there's an oral history. I can um, I don't remember the title off the top of my head, but well, mm-hmm. I guess for anybody listening, there's a wonderful documentary called um, I think it's this hype exclamation point. The filmmakers came to Seattle sort of just after Nirvana had broken big, but before Kurt Cobain um, passed away. And so it's this this portrait of Seattle as the grunge scene was exploding nas- like on a nationwide scale through Nirvana and Pearl Jam. But the filmmakers came and they spoke with the bands that had kind of stayed behind. And some of them were extremely bitter about the fact that grunge had gone national and had sort of destroyed what was nice about their their little scene um and other ones wanted to go big but you know they would play some songs and you're like mm. <laughs> like <laughs> i understand why <laughs> i understand why you couldn't sell out even if you wanted to um it's <laughs> it's really fascinating um i definitely recommend that to anyone who's interested in sort of what it looks like when a scene um is on the the verge of deflating rapidly thanks to, you know, commercialization. Yeah, and uh, to add to the points that Yan made, one of the other factors that's um, maybe less recognized for understandable reasons is that the people who came into the scene around the Olympics were were kids. Like, for lack of a better word, they were teens. Like, they were 17, 18 when they started playing shows. And many of them did get, popular um to an extent and were and could tour nationwide and many of them toured you know played at south by southwest or did small australian or european tours and yeah many of them were burnt out by the time they were 25 um either some in many cases because of drugs and and withdrawal and rehab um and in some cases because they had to now enter the rat race or to to find a job and they just created this transition, like Yan said. Um, the curse of independent music in China is that no generation, you know, hands over the baton to the next. Every generation has to reinvent the wheel. And with this scene in particular, it seemed like that curse might be broken, but um, it wasn't. And the next generation just had to start from scratch in ways that were like heartbreaking. But um, to connect it to your point about documentaries, I wanted to drop a link in the chat, which mm-hmm. is a a list of documentaries about the Beijing underground scene, maintained by our friend um, Nathaniel Amar, who is kind of the foremost historian of Chinese punk rock, um, who is currently based in Taipei. Um, so he maintains this blog um, and has very painstakingly archived and linked to every available documentary about uh, the Beijing underground scene produced since 1997 onwards. Yeah, so I'm I'm interested, though, in this idea of having to reinvent the scene or reinvent a scene every every generation because of, of burnout. And I mean, I guess maybe this is a difference, a big difference with... Um, again the Japanese scene which is what I'm I'm most familiar with but you know the idea that you can be a band for 
25, 30 years, that that's a career. Um, you know, you can start an indie band and in a, you know, dingy practice space when you're 18 and that you're still playing with these same people when you're 55, 60. Um, I mean, that's a very attainable goal in, you know, if you're a kid in Fukuoka, but I mean, maybe that's not something that, that you have a model for if you're a kid in, um, Beijing. Yeah. I, I mean, again, I, I want Yen to jump in here if I'm, uh, whenever, but like there's maybe this, uh, three distinct waves of underground music, quote unquote, underground music in Beijing. And the first wave, which started in the late eighties, many of those bands, you know, of course, maybe stopped playing after 89, but say the bands that survived people like Trey Jian or Zhang Chu or like He Yong before his death, like or Dou Wei, like they're all still still active. <laughs> you know, like they've become godfathers of the scene in many ways. And yet it's curious to me because if you ask me to name a band from today that is say directly inspired by Trey Jian, who's like considered like the godfather of Chinese rock. I probably couldn't name one. I don't know if Yan disagrees with this, but like there is no lineage connecting that generation to the next. Like the bands that came after were not inspired by those who came before them. They were inspired by something totally different, which in Beijing's case was like the Velvet Underground and bands like Sonic Youth. And I find that really curious. reminds me a lot of um, sort of the rock and indie scene in Seoul, actually. I mean, there were all these wonderful rock bands sort of in the, the early 70s that this whole generation of musicians was kind of wiped out by the government in, I think it was 75. They There was a big wave of marijuana arrests, and um, it it absolutely killed any rock scene that there was. And you know, so the the people that came later weren't directly influenced by the that earlier generation because they'd kind of been memory hold in in some ways, and so they were pulling from yeah you know, like metal, 
like American or, you know, European, like heavy metal and sort of Japanese music. And, um, yeah, that there, that I think there are some parallels there with, um, Korean rock. Oh, that's really interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. I've got a piece coming out in a frenzine on, um, yeah. Yeah. yeah I'll, I'll link it. <laughs> I'll send you the link when it's up. <laughs> But I'm curious, like, because Yen, you've maybe watched the the kind of current wave of reality shows where, like, people, like, bands are explicitly asked about their lineages. Like, do any of them actually trace themselves back to previous Wait generations of Beijing music? If I could, if I could just break it, yeah, reality sorry. reality shows, like, there's, um, because you mentioned the one from 2015, was it with where they. But so the, is this like a thing where they have all these reality shows about like bands? So actually, I think the the first successful rock music reality show was around 2018 or 2019. It's basically just get a group of already quite established or some some established some new bands to play and compete. And um, whoever remain in the last round become the, I don't know, champion or winner of that season. So in that show, of course, for narrative's sake or for emotions and stories, um, all these established bands would tell how they formed the bands, how they practiced in all these small, cramped, dingy spaces um and couldn't get opportunities to play shows but then they persisted and now they're here on a big stage i actually don't remember any of them mention explicitly influence from this you know from earlier generation although for example d22 was was mentioned also um actually it was a very prominent space featured within the reality show in order to tell one of the band's history. Um, so I think there was there was a little bit acknowledgement on the scene and the history, but not enough for people who don't already know it to fully understand what happened. And I think generally speaking, rock music in this reality show was packaged as something to just to be consumed and it's very easy to consume it's all just like very um, exaggerated lighting and people playing on stage with audience getting crazy so the the visuals are very influenced by other depictions of of rock music like that you would see in um, you know MTV or something. Yes, okay. definitely. Yeah. Oh God, yeah. like the cringe era of MTV <laughs> too. Yeah. Oh. But also, like the thing that was like, oh man, I have okay, a few scattered thoughts. I'll try to get them no, as orderly as possible. No, but, no worries. Um, the I feel like the story of the Beijing Underground is specifically hard to tell on TV because the story is actually one of collaboration it kind of resists TV narratives. Cause you know, like even with Cars to Cars, like you found each other on the internet. Like that's not, it's very hard to like televise, right? Um, and the thing that like disappointed both of us when we were watching the show is that oftentimes the stories of these bands were reduced to 
being individual tortured geniuses that had breakthroughs that produced their music. When in fact, we know from being in the scene that these songs were produced collaboratively. They were the result of being like a body on the dance floor, right? They were part like jamming and, and kind of being in shows and sweaty live houses day after day after day after day. And then eventually making your sound as this combination of bits from other bands that you were hearing. But that doesn't make for good TV. And so that nar- narrative was completely destroyed. The other thing that was really funny <laughs> was that every time they talked about D22, they would cut to flashbacks in black and white. And I'm like, this was literally seven years ago. <laughs> like, it's, it, was, it was the late 2000s. Like, it was the 2010s. Like, it, why is it in black and white? <laughs> well, just to go back to the torture genius, that is a trope that's, I mean, that's ripped directly from sort of the, the Western conception of, of rock music. Like, the idea that, you know, history is sort of made by this, by what's been documented and... You know, that's that is how a lot of these rock groups are presented in American or British or, you know, English media anyway, is that, the, you know, it is these tortured geniuses that the Lou Reeds, the John Lennon, to me, that's a very familiar and very tired and very um, just inaccurate trope that I, I really dislike. And it's uh, interesting to see that kind of adopted in a totally different context, trying to tell a story about rock music, they go right for the tortured, right for the tortured genius trope. It's another wonderful export from America. Also, I think just based on what Chris just said, um, I feel like I never thought about it this way, but it just feels like the whole competition format of the, this reality show, it, it goes against the essence of, you know, bands getting together and collaborate and write musics together. It's just two completely opposite thing. But it's kind of unfortunate that they enter the ma- mainstream this way and now probably gave the public a very wrong conception of perception of what what rock music is. Mm, like a, a battle of the bands where there's yeah. one there's one winner. I mean, in, in, yeah. not to, to derail things, but that is a very um, idle, idle group way of, of looking <laughs> at rock music. Yeah. Or the, the AKB48 of, um, of, of rock and roll. I have, a, I have a good transition from this to idleness. Idle, I'm talking about idols in China, but um, we don't I want to say that. We have to. <laughs> <laughs> but, 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 but I just want to say that, like, in fact, the only band that maybe even tried to trace their lineage back to the Beijing scene and its own history was Carsick Cars. So Carsick Cars appeared on season two of the show, The Big Band. And they have now reached a level of national fame that they could never um, as indie musicians. And their appearance on the show has made them somehow even... like they, It's made them... like very prominent nationally to the point where like getting tickets for their show is really hard and uh, ticket prices for a Karsik car show whose production values have not changed in 15 years <laughs> is now three times higher than what, what it used to be. Um, and also people have forgotten to like 
They've forgotten the rituals of a Karsi car show. Sorry, I'm like bitter about this because I've no. been I've seen Karsi cars every year since 2011. This is <laughs> this is what my podcast is all about: is being bitter <laughs> about newcomers to the genre that have forgotten the traditions that those of us who are longtime fans know all about. It's because it is frustrating, you know. It is frustrating <laughs> as a fan when you go to a concert and all of a sudden no one knows what you're supposed to do. And so they behave in unacceptable ways and ruin the experience for you. <laughs> so so Karsikars on the show actually performed a cover of a song by Doe, who is this... Doe is such an interesting figure because he, he came up in the 90s as this alternative musician in Beijing. And in a different... Alter, in a, an alternative universe, he would kind of be China's Ruchi Sakamoto. That did not happen. So he had this career as as an alternative musician. And then he ended up marrying still one of China's biggest idols, uh, Wang Fei. Mm. And they have since divorced. And he has transformed into what can best be described as a controversial slob. Um, <laughs> he's like best known for like setting cars on fire and... <laughs> like eating unhealthy food. Those are the two things I remember from his online persona. Living the dream. Um, Living <laughs> and the he, dream. But, but he does make really interesting, I mean, for a, for a musician of his stature, stature in China, like he makes really outsider music, like kind of Buddhist, Taoist-inspired drone albums, which I love. They're like incredible. And he rarely plays live. Um, is not online in any meaningful way. But by covering one of his old songs, I feel like Karsik Kars really channeled a lineage of Beijing alternative music that many people have forgotten. And it was really a radical moment for the show, even if that was not intended. And that was magical. I mean, I, I feel like that was one of those rare moments where the show was like, show reveals something new that would not have been revealed otherwise. I think there's a video of that performance on, on YouTube. I'll, I'll, I'll try and find a link, but that would be a good one to play as well. Yeah, I can. Uh, I will certainly drop that in.
But the transition I was thinking of was that the result of the show has been a significant shift in how rock shows feel in China. Like the audience feels different. It feels like a pop, like an idol show. It feels like fandom. The form of fandom has shifted from a kind of distanced, ironic, um, hipster fandom to a very much my idol is better than yours kind of fandom. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so this is yeah. we're we're getting into my wheelhouse right here. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Yan and I were actually quoted in a Rolling Stone article as bitter indie fans <laughs> talking about how shows have changed <laughs> and the kids are not the same anymore. <laughs> the kids are not all right. They're bickering <laughs> online about their idols. <laughs> yeah, that is an interesting shift to go from yeah the detached. India, which I, I've been a part of those scenes um, in, I was a, a former, former punk rocker in Boston. And yeah, so I'm very familiar with, with that kind of uh, fandom where you, the, you play the shows and there's no one at the front of the stage, but there's just this wall of people back with their arms crossed, kind of like, hmm, yeah, <laughs> nodding along. <laughs> you don't want to upset your beer too much. Um yeah, I've I've played those played those gigs, and yeah, it's uh, it is a different world um, when you get to the the idol concerts or the pop pop concerts in Asia. Actually, Yan is working on a paper right now about idol fandom. Um, I I believe you discovered that fandom around idols in China is really not that old a phenomenon, right? Like it's it's really recent. So what I discovered, I guess this is something that probably a lot a lot of people already know. But basically, idol became a really big thing in China when, in 2016, China had this political dispute with South Korea, mm. and and before that, I think the the most prominent idol, most prominent and famous idols in China are all from South Korea. So fans would just organize to support. I don't know, Super Junior or EXO. Big Bang. Yeah, and with that band, basically all these South Korean idols couldn't perform or do any activities in China. So that actually created a huge vacuum in the Chinese market. And I think it was also around the year that all the Chinese members from EXO decided to come back to China, Mm. including... Chris Wu, um, the now arrested celebrity, uh, most notorious celebrity in China. The notorious Chris Wu. Yeah. So, yeah, so basically 2016 was 
the origin of idol culture in China in a way. And I I haven't checked this yet, but I would I would think um, on the other side the there's also this um, girl group that's emu、um, emulating the AKB48 model、mm-hmm. called SNH48、uh, in China, and I I think. They probably also emerged around that time, so yeah, it kind of just started to film the this empty space that South Korean idols left, and then with reality shows, the Chinese version of Produce Well One、mm. that was 2018, and there was another one before that in 2017 that was also really popular. Yeah, so I think it's this. Emptiness of the market, and then the reality show, and then the industry all coming together that created what we have right now. Yeah, the, I I remember that、um, the ban because it affected groups that had both Korean and Chinese members, and so the one I'm thinking of is there's this、uh, K-pop group called Unique, which I believe is technically still that. Technically not disbanded, although they haven't, you know, done anything since 2016. But one of the members of that group was、uh, Wang Yibo, who was in、uh, The Untamed, and has become kind of a global figure now. Yeah, it is quite interesting because if you don't mention unique, I actually wouldn't remember that Wang Yibo used to be a K-pop. Yeah, he was. He was、yeah. in a K-pop group, and him and I think quite a few. You know, these they had trained in Korea and they came back to China、um, when that that band struck. Yes.、Mm-hmm. This is semi-related, but. I wanted to share one of my favorite headlines of all time, from 2010, where every word is an escalation that you don't expect. <laughs> but but it's semi-related because this was an incident involving Super Junior. Oh, okay. And I feel like whereas the 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 political situation in 2015 gave the government an excuse to ban Korean touring acts, they were like actually facing an increasing amount of chaotic fandom-related incidents, both online and offline. This one's my favorite. Where, I mean, every word, right? It's like Chinese hackers 
launch virtual jihad against <laughs> K-pop fans because of a stampede caused by Super Junior. I mean, that just incredible. <laughs> <laughs> that's what that's going to be the title of this episode now. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, idol I mean idol fans are crazy and I can say this as someone who has been around them for many 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 years. And um without some sort of organized structure, they really go off the rails very quickly. I mean, I guess the closest equivalent is maybe, you know, like football fans or um gosh, like uh fans of like uh, Indian film heroes you know the the especially the ones mm-hmm. down in South India where they you know can end up running for office political office but you get these huge processions like outside the movie theaters and stuff yeah as a, as a Tamil person I can, oh, I okay, can yeah. confirm yeah <laughs> um, but I guess one of the questions that like Yan is asking in her research is like is this a factor of just how the Chinese internet is hmm is structured in that is it is it exacerbating certain certain fandom excesses right or not not even asking this question i'm basically <laughs> just arguing for <laughs> um, yeah cuz i feel like since all, almost all the all these fandom activities happen on weibo this chinese micro blogging website that we always try to compare it to twitter but the more i write about weibo's features the more i realize how complicated they are and how these complicated features are used by fans to do certain you know to to for example a very simple feature is under each post there are comments right but then within comments you can also click likes to like the comments and then the comments are ordered by default by their popularity so that basically gave fans all this work to not just comment under their idols posts but also to click likes of comments that are supporting their idol so that they can make sure that comments in favor of the idol show up first instead of antis I guess I I was trying to argue in my paper that all of these features are there because these social media platforms also need the fans and the idols to create all these hyper activities on their websites so that the websites can make money as a business but then to be honest this is the question I couldn't answer is that where does this start because you know only idol fans would react this way given all these features a film star's fans don't do all these crazy posting and like occupying trendy topic type of activities so that's something i'm still trying to wrap my head around except for resorting to this whole theory about you know there's emotional attachment and there's there's this parasocial relationship between fans and the idol. I, I mean it goes beyond I mean uh, parasocial relationship I think um when, especially when it comes to these competition show well 
idols yeah. you know the idols are in competition it's a game yeah. and so I, yeah. I feel like you know idol fans when they fall into these behavior patterns a lot of it is this this obsessive gamification of social interaction right so yeah so they're incur i mean that they, they want to win yeah the, that's true you know the the motivation more than anything else is well both winning but a, a fear of losing um and i feel like that is the motivation more than more than anything else when it comes to these types of interactions i feel like there's an interesting difference there where um as much as we say that the fandom or the audience for indie rock has is resembling fandom. Mm. The behavior of fans is not like this. Um, and it's interesting because like the difference seems to be that what we found going to indie rock shows recently in China is that the people who come to these shows treat it like it's a a theme park. It's like you've paid your money to see the rock roller coaster. And if you don't get your money's worth, then you know it's somehow like a fraud or a scam. And so people tend to behave as if they're on, like in the rock theme park. They're like, well, what do you do in a rock theme park? You have to crowd surf. Even if like the moment or the music does not call for it at all, people, like five people trying to crowd surf at, a, at one time. And I, I, it doesn't quite, like, I guess it hasn't quite reached fandom levels of behavior um, or like a concert behaviors I would associate with idol idol stars and i'm curious like if this is some kind of transitional stage or something like that but it's really interesting because like i think this level of defense of the idols does not yet happen with with rock bands even the ones that have been winners on this show well i guess it's because even though the show is competitive in nature by the end of the day these Bands are not really competing with each other. I don't know. I mean, thank God they're not, because <laughs> you'd have m more people trying to buy trending topics. <laughs> <laughs> I guess the show recognized that because you know, even the first season was like, actually, we're just gonna pick five winners, right? I mean, it it, yeah. it is like idol shows in that like they pick five to debut or whatever, but like. They didn't pick a winning band. They picked, like, the hot five. Right. But I think there's another thing that hasn't been carried over to indie music, which is... Actually, I think last episode you talked about this. It probably originated around AKB48, where, you know, a small group of people are willing to buy a huge amount of records or this kind of overconsumption from fans... Um, it's very, very prevalent in Chinese idol fandom too. You know, just buying, I don't know, like tens or hundreds of copies of magazines or CDs that's related to your idol or in the reality show that I wrote about, you just buy boxes of yogurt so that you can vote for the idol you support. I feel like this kind of consumption-driven culture was, at least right now, is not carried into indie music, thankfully. Yeah, a lot of this in, you know, as it's sort of translated to the American context with BTS specifically, it's revolved around 
um, the billboard chart, which, I mean, the billboard has certainly not dissuaded these fans or discouraged them from doing this, but, you know, these fans work to, you know, win at this gamified chart. Um, so they have a goal and the goal is to get number one. And, you know, with the idols, the goal is to, you know, win the, the show and be the best idol or, you know, win the trending topic for the day. But I mean, maybe there isn't that prize yet in, in indie rock or rock and roll. And maybe that if that existed, we might see this behavior start to creep in unless there is a, a, a number one prize but no one is, uh, <laughs> they're not battling for it yet. I mean, it's really, uh, just to make a small comparison, I feel like, again, I'm. you can correct me if I'm wrong because I'm not too familiar with how this might work in Korea and Japan specifically, but I feel like the infrastructure for digital sales in China is extremely advanced and ridiculously simple. And so I'm thinking of the, Contrast in particular with an indie rock band called uh, Omnipotent Youth Society.
who are from like a small industrial town near Beijing, released a ridiculously good debut album in 2010 and then basically disappeared for like the next 10 years. Um, but they released a follow-up album last year. No, this year, last year, <laughs> recently, um, um, which, which, which you could only stream on Wang Yi, like NetEase, one of the streaming platforms by paying like a cost, like like 20 quiet, 20 RMB um, mm. to unlock the album, right? And they did half a million pre-sales on, on streams of this album, which is incredible for an indie rock band. I wouldn't say there are a lot of people bought like multiple copies. I would say most of these are probably real. No, yeah. real yeah, that's works. what I was getting to. Like yeah. you can't buy multiple copies because like you buy a copy, it's, it's linked to your account and then it's unlocked for your account, right? Um, but... Contrast that to like Kun, like Xiaoshu Kun, like the big yeah. idol who did not even release an album, released the promise of an album <laughs> that is going to be rolled out between February of 2021 and April of 2022. Like, so the full album is not even out yet. And yet, you just buy digital copies of this album that doesn't exist. And he's already amassed like millions, like seven, eight million sales. And a lot of it is fans buying multiple copies, which they enabled, knowing that fans would buy multiple copies, which to me is dubious in its legality, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, because the music doesn't actually exist. It's unethical. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think a lot of these sales tactics that are encouraged, you know, implicitly by these companies that do allow for, you know, the BTS and Hybe, their their company, they set up these um, online stores specifically for fans to go in and buy the... There's all these rules that, that the charts put in place. You can only buy four um, MP3s at a time, and but the, you know they get around it, and so they'll put out all these remixes, and so you can buy four four MP3s of each remix, and you end up with like thirty two or sixty four MP3s of, I mean, basically, you know, one song. So instead of paying like a dollar, you're paying $64. And they do this over and over and over and over again. And it's, you know, it's implicitly encouraged, which I, I find very unethical. But I mean, that's the that's the gamification model. And fans do it because they want to win. Yes, for sure. But I guess there's still one thing. Um, I used it as an example in my paper. So there's this advertisement campaign of a big brand, the international big brand in on the Chinese social media. And they invited, I would say, a dozen or even over a dozen of celebrities. Some of them are idols, some of them are not. And basically, they just uploaded a series of videos of these celebrities talking about the brand. And then you can see the number of likes under each video is significantly different. So under the idols video you get hundreds of thousands likes but then for all the other celebrities the the number of likes is only like thousands or tens of thousands the most i mean of course it is still this like very competitive mentality for fans to do it but then i don't know i just don't 
I mean, in this very specific case, like your idol has already got this endorsement. Like, what is the point of doing all these things for free for the brand? Um, yeah, I guess I just feel very strongly about this. <laughs> no, I agree. I think it's it is frustrating to see this behavior, and you do see it with it just encourages the obsessive liking and clicking and being yeah. engaged online. And the motivation is pretty clear, like you said, from the for the tech companies and the music companies. But yeah, I, I don't know why fans would um, encourage each other to do it, but they do. You get all hyped up. It's yeah. so e- it's so easy to fall into this this behavior pattern. It is. Because as I'm researching this, I also found myself sometimes just like casually clicking some some likes for the idol I like as well, you know? Well, might as well. (laughs) As long as I'm here, I may as well just like this picture of Wang Yibo. (laughs) 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 But I'm, I'm kind of interested to see if China you know, capital C China is going to be successful in exporting any of this outside because there are definitely some moves in that direction, adding English subtitles to certain things or just making certain information more accessible to um, sort of a global audience. But I I don't know. So much of it seems very tied to the Chinese internet. I don't know how successful it would be at, at exporting exporting some of these shows. I think maybe for indie music, it's done in a very small scale. For mm-hmm. example, um, there's this Chinese emo band called Chinese Football. name play on the American football band and they're quite well known uh, internationally I think because of this connection to American football and their music is really good and they basically set up their band camp themselves and managed to make some money out of it um, and Christian and I found well again on Douban they wrote a guide for bands who were in Chinese bands who want to 
you know, distribute their own music on Bandcamp to an international audience because some of them don't speak English that well and then they have to navigate the whole shipping system if they want to sell the actual CD and merch. Yeah, so they had they wrote a com- very detailed step-by-step guide like if you want to sell uh, if you want to ship things remember to ask people to leave their phone number because usually in China we would ask for phone numbers but in western countries they don't ask for it and it's very important all these very detailed tips I think that's happening at a very small scale but yeah on the other side for idols it's all driven by big companies like Tencent that's behind this, well, they call it the first international boy group, boy band called Into One, coming from um, this year's reality show, Chuang 2021. <laughs> um, I mean, they do have they, have, they have two Thai members, two Japanese members, one half Japanese, half American, and then they have a Chinese member who has an Amer- American passport who can count as a foreign member. I think this move, it's more of a like a financial driven move just because Southeast Asia or East Asia, including Southeast Asia, is a big market that Tencent um, and their video streaming service WeTV want to penetrate into. But to be honest, I don't think this group is successful in any way on the international level. Partly can't because be, right? it's like, just so hard. Like just can't, yeah. Yeah, like you know, all the music they they produce so far, it's I don't think when they produce it, they have the international audience in mind. And then also with COVID, you can't even travel outside China. So there's there's no way for you to have real meaningful interaction with fans. That is a huge part of idol fandom is actually going to the shows and going to handshake events and, and things yes. like that. That's a huge part of it. Fan meetings. Yes. And I think the idol business has really suffered these last two years with the all the cancellations and the lack of touring. And it's been kind of sad, actually. The, the online concerts are not... I know the tech companies are pushing them, but they're... I paid for one. I mean, it was okay, but I, I'm like, I'm not paying for this again. <laughs> <laughs> I Coming back to what Yen said about Chinese football, the band, I feel like one of the missed opportunities that Chinese music generally, but pop music specifically, is maybe not taking advantage of or even exploring enough is 
being connected to Chinese cultural products, right? Like mm. a lot of people discover Japanese bands, like, you know, Radwimps were discovered because they were the soundtrack for your name. Mm-hmm. Um, and that just doesn't happen with, with, with Chinese films. Like, like ask anyone, do you remember the soundtrack to Wandering Earth? And they'd be like, no, like there was no music. And the few indie bands that managed to break through are actually the result of their collaborations with other forms of media. Um, there's a band that me and Yan really like called Hualun, who are from Wuhan. And they've kind of been building a lot of buzz over the last two years because they've just done beautiful ambient soundtracks for arthouse films. This has led to like an audience for them abroad that is not available for many Chinese bands or even Chinese pop stars. And they are signed to like a foreign label that helps, you know, promote their physical merch. The other problem now is that Bandcamp since last year has been blocked in China. And so it adds an additional layer of complication for local bands that want to build an international audience. The other musician who seems to like straddle these worlds really well is a Beijing electronic musician called Howie Li. In general, like foreign audiences are easier to find for club musicians in China, but I feel like Howie Li kind of sits really nicely between the club and the indie worlds. He actually did a Mandarin language version of a Charlie XCX song, which is which is really good. It's a it's a Mandarin version of Boys. <laughs> really like it uh but but howie's been like just like a trailblazer and he's now signed also to an international label that promotes his albums um and physical merch abroad and he like both hualun and howie lee tend to pop up on like best of year lists from like niche trend-setting publications and that that's something that rarely happens with chinese indie music and to be honest like rarely with chinese pop music as well Mm. No, that's a good point about 
the um the films and um a lo- yeah a lot of japanese bands do get sort of picked up by international audiences via anime um via anime theme songs or yeah like the film like your name yeah korean dramas the the ost ballads and things like that can can get picked up that way yeah that there is a lot of opportunity there for cross marketing but i guess yeah i mean Maybe those worlds just don't collide, the music and the, the film or the music and like television drama worlds. Yeah, Taiwanese bands are way more successful at mm. this than, than, than mainland ones, for sure. But I actually have a more cynical view on this. I feel like whenever this kind of things happen in China, it's in the service of the bigger entertainment company behind it. So I have a I have this perfect example. So Tencent, they produce all these uh, produce one hundred one type of idol show every year, and so basically they have all these popular idols that's kind of under their management, and then Tencent as a streaming platform, they also produce TVs. So they can very easily ask these idols to sing songs for the TV show they produce. And this year, there's a TV show that's about the most popular mobile game in China. That's basically a Tencent game called uh, Wang Zhirongyao. I actually don't know the name of the, the Chinese, the English name of the game. Honor of Kings. Oh yeah, Honor of Kings, which is also huge worldwide, I think. So basically, Tencent, through their TV arm, made a TV show on a game that's also owned by this company and then had some of the idol that came out of their own reality show to sing songs for this TV show. So it's kind of just creating this huge ecosystem in which everyone becomes just a part uh, or a puzzle piece Hmm. that fulfill the big empire that Tencent is building. So it's not really done in in the interest of, you know, giving these idols or giving these artists more exposure. It's more mm. just how Tencent use resources at their hands to just produce products for people to consume. But this might be a very cynical way of reading. I mean, it. it's it's cynical, but that doesn't mean it's wrong. <laughs> Because I, 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 yeah, I can see that. I think that's a very realistic way of, of looking at some of these things. I know in Korean entertainment companies, there's been a move to, to further silo off their talents into like metaverse and online, um, putting them in like webtoons and, and things like that sort of meant to be consumed only by the fans rather than things that are meant to further the careers of the idols it's just creating more product to consume and hit like on it was kind of depressing <laughs> well i guess this is probably a good place to kind of wrap up on a very cynical <laughs> very cynical note <laughs> but um <laughs> i do have one last question though um so when i was looking up the Taiwanese wave dramas I mean I remember really enjoying like Fahrenheit and F4 did they have any presence at all 
in uh, mainland China? Yes, they were they were huge when I was in elementary school. Well, this is really embarrassing, but I have to admit it. Um, when I was in fifth grade, my family got a tiny puppy, and I named the puppy after the oh. <laughs> name of one of the <laughs> F four members. <laughs> Well, Wait, that's what? a testament to how big they are. <laughs> I I did not know this. That's amazing. <laughs> well, I will admit, I still follow Venice Wu on Instagram, and nice. he is still extremely handsome. So there's that. <laughs> Actually, one of wait, one or two of them participated in this other. Reality show in China this year. Really? Yeah. Was it Jerry Yan? I feel like Jerry Yan is up for it. Yes. Yes, it is him. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow I just knew it had to be Jerry Yan. Um, <laughs> but yeah, they, <laughs> I remember enjoying, um, I think Meteor Garden might have yeah. even been the first uh, drama I even watched many 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 years ago yeah i think that was probably for me also the most popular and widely watched taiwanese drama or the earliest that i can remember when i was in elementary school yeah and it was all just bootleg vcd i mm -hmm. think yeah, yeah probably out of VCD at the hong time. kong yeah yeah well, it's good to know that um, F4 and Fahrenheit yes. <laughs> had an audience. <laughs> um, well, do you have a song that you want to end on? I like to go out with a song. Krish. <laughs> not, not to put you on the spot again. Um, I'm going to try and pick like a, like a very Beijing song, maybe. Okay. So I'm going to say... Choi Wan, which is the best indie rock band to come out of Beijing in the last decade, and their song, uh, Beijing is Sinking. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so Beijing is Sinking. Well, do you want to promote anything before I sign off for good? You've got the excellent, on is it an online magazine, online newsletter? What would you call your project? I think we say experimental newsletter. Experiment. Yeah, I'll... So Indie Yen and newsletter. I are part of so Yen and I are part of <laughs> Trap, which is a experimental newsletter about contemporary culture in China. Um, we have covered topics like getting too much into idol shows and buying yogurt, and <laughs> the hidden influence of Taiwanese um, music on China, mainland China culture for the last two decades, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Separately, Yen also runs a really good newsletter called Far and Near, which is about visual culture and photojournalism in China. Yeah, both of them are on Substack. So it should be very easy to find. And I will link to those in my show notes, along with um, a track list of everything that I play. And um, yeah, anything else I think is interesting. I can include a uh, trailer for Hype! Exclamation point, which <laughs> I do really recommend if you're interested in music at all, is such a wonderful documentary. It is yeah. very, very funny. I also just watched the the new Velvet Underground documentary by Todd Haynes. Ooh, I... um, wait, 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 and... wait, 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 wait. Todd yeah. Haynes, 
Todd Haynes? I guess. <laughs> yeah. I, I was not familiar with the name, but it felt important to say. Okay. Um, I have not um, seen that. It's very good. And I think um, especially like I saw it purely for visual inspiration mm. um, since I'm working on a comic book about the Beijing underground scene. And it, the screenplay was very much like a comic book, which I really appreciated. And I think it worked really well for the subject matter. Lots of multi-channel videos, you know, things going on at the same time. Very nice. Very, 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 very nicely done. And very aware of how the band sucked in many ways. Um, <laughs> so it's very good. I, I really, I liked it. <laughs> Are you saying that um, Moe Tucker was not the uh, <laughs> best drummer that ever emerged from, from America? She's, she's, the, she's, the, she's the best character in the film by far. <laughs> <laughs> one, of, I mean, one of the few uh, members of the band that they managed to interview, right? So um, yeah. God, this that really brings me back. When I was in my punk days in Boston, we were also big Velvet Underground fans. And my friend Jen, who was the singer for our group, she had this blonde hair, kind of like Nico. (laughs) 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 We were very into um, like the whole Andy Warhol thing. And like, you know, plastic is like plastic is the revolution, man. As, as only the youth can be. Oh, all right. Well, uh, Beijing is sinking. And this has, <laughs> been, <laughs> this has been the Idolcast. And thank you so much for coming on my show. I really enjoyed this. Thank you. Thank you. Really Thanks for having us. This.